This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast where history is revised according to our taste daily. Today we're discussing the films of Quentin Tarantino, focusing on his most recent Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is Mark Lintonmeyer, edited down to a duration you can comfortably stand. This is Erica Spires, and I'm just here to be the blonde who may or may not talk a lot. I'm Brian Hurt, better known in Reservoir Dogs as Mr. Beige. And presenting our guests... And this is Wes Allman. <laughs> Hello, Wes. Hello. He has the important cameo for this one. Visiting us from the partially examined life, you're kind of the reason this podcast exists, that you are pushing us to do more culture topics, and so we are. And now you're joining us. Yay, the circle is complete. <laughs> and this topic in particular, you said this is one of those that you're working on a, like a book-length essay about. Do you want to give us the gist to get us started? I've written a long essay that I'm still working on revising, and hopefully it'll get published somewhere someday. I'm not normally a Tarantino fan, but this movie I liked a lot, and it became a big distraction for me. So. Really? You're not normally a Tarantino fan? No. What was it about this film that did it for you? It's a very different film, I think, than his usual fare, and part of that is just that the violence in it plays a smaller role, but also his films, in a way, are always kind of pop culture tributes, in a way. They're always quotational and referring back to other films, but this is more in the realm of a very high-minded tribute to film in general, which I take, you know, that's one of the reasons why Tate doesn't talk that much is because she's so idealized in this. But the bulk of the film is a very pleasurable experience. He's focused entirely on, I guess you might say, his love of film and filmmaking. And I think that just, it comes out more than ever in this. And that's what I like about him. Before we go too far, are we agreed that we are spoiling the hell out of this movie and all Tarantino films so we can actually talk about them? Anyone listening, come on, man, has seen this. <laughs> Definitely we are spoiling Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I don't know about the others. What do you say? Why not? Yeah, as statute of limitations. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen Pulp Fiction yet. Guess what? Something violent happens at the end. Of every movie. Of all of Wait, them. <laughs> let me just double check my the list of ten. Is that true? Pretty much to a greater sure. or lesser extent. <laughs> It could just be a shootout that is relatively bloodless. It could be something very horrific. So, Wes, how important is it for you to be a fan to be writing the essay that you're writing? Yeah, it's not. Because my essays more reflect my own preoccupations anyway. They're more about other general topics, like violence in the arts and is one of my themes. And so that's, you know, so Tarantino is good material for that. We just did an episode on Kierkegaard recently where basically on something he wrote that started out as a review of a novel, but it ultimately was longer than the novel. So that's the way I tend to write. <laughs> I just have no discipline and I veer off into my own stuff. And then, so is it about the film? Kind of, but <laughs> not exactly. All right. No discipline in veering off. You're definitely on the right podcast. Mark and Erica both, would you consider yourself Tarantino fans just to help orient me on this? There are some very important Tarantino films I have never seen, so I can't call myself a huge fan. But in the last several years, it's become more important to me to like look at the things that people call great pieces of art. And so I have started going to see his films. I saw The Hateful Eight in the, uh, what was it called? This is how bad I am. Is it the 8mm? The extended one? 35 millimeter. What did I say? 8mm. My husband is literally (laughs) shaking his head right now. That's like a gun or something, isn't it? Or is the Zapruder film. 
Um, um, was it shaky? <laughs> oh my God, you guys know. So I saw it in 35 millimeter at Coolidge Corner Theater in Boston, which was just amazing. And they had the interval and everything in the middle. I enjoy his films, but I wouldn't say that I'm a huge fan. I just always enjoy the auteur thing of, you know, so I definitely find him and his films interesting. I appreciate the way that he bridges the high and low culture gap. I find it very pretentious. I think he would find it very pretentious to call his films high art or anything. You know, there are things that are really juvenile about them, but it's a style that I can more or less get in touch with. I just this morning finished rewatching Inglorious Bastards just to ruin the end of that. <laughs> I appreciated the historical revisionist justice that was going on. When it actually comes to a close-up watching somebody get a swastika carved in their head, that was a little squirm-worthy. I don't know that I would have left all that in there, but I appreciate where he's coming from. And yeah, generally have found actually more and more as I've sort of reintroduced myself to this. And just if you set your expectations, like I read this current film referred to as a hangout film. And I think if you kind of have that in mind, like, yeah, you're just hanging out with these characters. Don't expect things to move fast. And if you just carry that with you to every Tarantino movie, that works pretty well. Well, I like that, Mark. That's good. I find I seldom enjoy a Tarantino movie the first time as much as the second time. I think the pacing sometimes is a little off, but when they're good, they're so good that the second time I don't have to worry about the pacing. I can just enjoy it. And as I look at the list, there are some I really, really like and a few I don't. I never go in expecting I'm going to like it, but expecting that I might. Have you seen all of them? I have not managed to get through Hateful Eight, and I've tried a few times, and I just keep failing. It's a terrible movie. It's not worth it. <laughs> and Death Proof, uh, I guess I also bad. wasn't really on my radar. I guess I knew he had done something that was a segment, but I should probably get back to it. Yeah, I didn't see that either. It didn't quite appeal to me. Hateful Eight I actually really liked, but I kind of do like the Western genre. So I was able to stick with that. I saw Grindhouse in the theater. So nice. Death Proof in its original form paired with Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror, I see. And I think I enjoyed his segment more than Rodriguez's one. I didn't like it. And I actually, when I saw Pulp Fiction in the theater, I was bothered by Pulp Fiction. His violence bothered me because it has a, Mark, you mentioned the word juvenile. I think there's like a perverse, sadistic quality to his violence that is not typical in movies. Most movies moralize it pretty effectively in terms of, you know, they're good guys and they're bad guys, and or they're bad guys and they're worse guys, and violence fits into this kind of moral framework where we can enjoy the fantasy of violence without being too bothered by the moral implications. But with like Pulp Fiction, the scene in which they're in the car and... John Travolta's character's gun goes off and blows the head off of the kid that they've just <laughs> picked up. It's meant to be funny, and they're, then they're just worried about the cleanup, and the audience laughs. And for me, that actually, that trivialization of violence and turning it into something funny like that, I thought that was really new. I thought I really hadn't seen anything like that before, and it really bothered me. And then the same thing with Reservoir Dogs. So I, for the longest time, I've been bothered by I'm not bothered by violence, violence in movies usually, but Tarantino was the exception because I thought he just sort of got off on it in a way that was just unusual and perverse. I agree with that in a lot of ways. I think it depends who the violence is toward, though, right? If it's somebody that we feel is worth it or not. Are they a terrible person getting their due or are they not? For example, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it didn't really bother me, but 
sometimes like how much Cliff went off and how much Rick Dalton, like how far he went with it with these women. I mean, had they not been women, would I have felt as weird? Maybe not. But also, I mean, they were terrible people who were trying to do something terrible. So like there was some fun in that. Dalton and Booth can't know that, right? So it, to us, right. we, we know the real timeline. And so he's taking revenge for something that within the framework of the film never really happened. So it's a weird thing. And also it's excessive. So it's not enough that they be bad guys. It's the way violence is usually moralized. The protagonist has to be doing something. They can't simply be gratuitously violent in the sense that they're just doing it because they enjoy it. The punishment has to kind of fit the crime and there has to be an element of necessity. So you don't get good guys who capture people and then torture them, except in maybe a Tarantino film, torture them to death. That would be seen as beyond the pale or inflicting excessive pain just for the sake of doing that or even the kind of revenge that goes past that line. So it's still different even when he's doing what he's doing. For him, I think it's an innovation like in Django Unchained and then Glorious Bastards. Like he found a way, all right, I'm going to use this. Now I can really get off on violence by, because now I have a really good rationale. They're Nazis or they're slave owners. So he discovered that. And actually, I think that improved his films in general. Yeah. Reservoir Dogs, this, the big scene is just disturbing. Like that just ruins the song for you forever. Right. I loved Inglorious Bastards. I agree. Like that one makes you feel kind of good for it. I remember I was in Boston watching that and they made the reference about Lansdowne Street. Everybody was just like, yeah, because we were in a movie theater right next to it. Everybody stood up and was screaming and it felt great. And that one was a lot of fun to watch and it didn't matter. You know, the violence didn't really bother you there. And you're right. This one, they're unaware of what we know. But Cliff, at least, is in a drug-induced haze. So we don't feel maybe quite as badly for that. Rick, it just seems like he's living out some fantasy. There's still a person with a gun in his pool, and she's still discharging it. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) You sound like a lawyer for the defense here. (laughs) But not at him. She's going up in the air. No, well, well, I'm just saying that, you know, part of it is... I think deaths are always so orchestrated, and I think you were getting at this, Wes, a little bit based on what we're supposed to feel about it and you know how much we think the person who is dying deserves to be getting it. I mean, that was one of the complaints. There's a, a woman who's torn apart by a pterodactyl or something in the Jurassic World movie, and it's pointed out like that was really just poorly directed because this woman hadn't really done anything wrong, and so to see her get killed so violently was poor judgment by the director. Tarantino is possibly just pointing out that deaths take as long as they take sometimes. And sometimes it's a bump on the road and you blow someone's head off. And sometimes people don't go down and it becomes this absurd thing in part because death and killing is absurd sometimes. I mean, I don't know if he needed to get out a flamethrower, but this woman wasn't dead yet and he was doing his thing. And so it becomes maybe shocking and horrifying, but it really is played for absurdism more than anything else. Well, at least it had a reference to something that happened previously in the film, which you can't say for all of the scenes that took place. There were so many times in this film where it would go on a tangent, and then I'd be like, did he have an editor on this? And I know part of this is just how he likes to make films, but what are your guys' takes on that? Like, did he do it effectively in this one? In particular, I'm thinking of the big fantasy that happens while Brad Pitt is up on the roof of the house, and then all of a sudden there's this flash sideways type thing of him being in this fantasy world being on set. Did you feel like that was used effectively or were you just afterwards being like, huh? It's a really interesting scene in part because he's on the roof and Sharon Tate is across the way in her room dancing and doing her thing. And I came to see Cliff Booth 
obviously he ends up being her primary protector at the very end of the movie. Tate is presented as so idealized and loving and that she's also really vulnerable. She comes across as an open person, you know, and so it's natural to see her as someone that could be taken advantage of by the Manson murders in the way that she was or caught unawares. And Booth is entirely the opposite in a way, right? The film establishes in various places that he's completely okay with using extreme violence at the drop of a hat and he's fearless and he doesn't have much of a conscience about it either. I mean, there's the few things that the fantasy on the roof is doing. It's establishing that he's a badass in a funny way by having him beat up Bruce Lee. It's establishing that he's killed his wife. So it's establishing an element of sociopathy and his ability to just casually use violence without any guilt. But above all, it's what it's not doing. You know, another character on that roof, the object of his fantasy might have been Tate herself. That's the natural progression there. She's in his room. He's in the position to be a peeping Tom. But instead, what he fantasizes about is all this other stuff. And that, to me, is the most effective part of that, because it establishes an interesting link between those two characters, which is not just the way most people would regard her, either as an object of desire or, you know, admiration because she's a film star or this or that. It's a completely different. Do you think that was a conscious decision on Tarantino's part not to have him like looking on her and to have his fantasy be not about her at all? Yeah, I think probably. I think he probably doesn't quite exactly know why he did it. I have my elaborate theory of why that's <laughs> so important and effective. That Obviously, Tarantino, if I spelled it out, it's not something Tarantino probably consciously thought of. But at an intuitive level, if you're a writer and director and you map out some of the possibilities, and one of them is, okay, what's he going to fantasize about now? Well, Tate's over there. Is he thinking about her? Well, no, that would be weird. Tarantino gets intuitively that Booth is the kind of character, that's not the kind of character you want him to be. He is ultimately the protector and the servant. Tarantino doesn't allow him to be in a relationship, like a libidinal desiring relationship to anyone, including the girl in the car who offers him a blowjob. So he knows what he's doing. It's probably at an intuitive level, but it's consistent. The characterization is consistent. Well, even the showing that he, it doesn't actually show him killing his wife, but it kind of gives him an excuse. It presents it like, he's not a bad guy. Even if he did this, it was just because, not that he plotted something, but that she's being a total bitch, and he's standing there on his boat with a spear gun, uh, just happened to be in his lap. Wouldn't you have done it, too, if she was asking? I mean, that's kind of how I feel it was presented, like, in a off-the-cuff, sort of joking way. I mean, I think he's supposed to transcend good guy, bad guy, so it's not supposed to matter. He is what he is. He's the defender. Like, technically, he's a sociopath, right? Anyone who can use violence that casually and fearlessly is actually a sociopath. Like, and there's nothing in the film that suggests that he's anything but that. He has no conscience. I feel like I could watch Brad Pitt do almost anything. And I've loved him for ages, but like, I didn't mind ever watching him kind of do nothing. If he had scenes where he didn't do much, I just find him inherently interesting to watch. I think Leo is incredible but i feel like when i watch him he's a great actor who really thinks about what he's going to do and i just feel like i could just watch brad and just be well what did you think about that choice of they could have just swapped parts as far as i was concerned that they're both sort of equally pretty boys and it sort of depends how you make them up as to whether leo as it you know looks a little bit over the hill whereas brad pitt looks chiseled and that's their characters here but i think the, the casting of leo in that makes a lot of sense it seems like you could put Michael Madsen or something in the Brad Pitt part. You know, it wouldn't have been as cool. But in terms of somebody who just seems like 
it's too easy for me to see Brad Pitt as the shadow of somebody who is just as charismatic and glowing as the supposed star, whereas you're supposed to just register them fundamentally differently on screen. I don't want to make Erica mad at me, but... You the, love um, that. Yeah, sure. I think that Leonardo's role required some acting chops that not everybody has, including Brad Pitt in my mind. I don't know for <laughs> sure, but thinking about like the scene in the trailer when he's <laughs> struggling with alcohol, I'm trying to think... Maybe it requires an acting style or an ability to kind of be out there in a way. I feel like Brad Pitt takes roles where he moderates his emotion so much, whereas Leonardo DiCaprio goes for these roles where he really goes for a bigger range of emotions. So let me piss off both of you and say I don't like either of them as actors that much. <laughs> but I think DiCaprio is a decent actor. I'm not a fan of Brad Pitt ever as an actor. He's not as bad as Keanu Reeves. I feel like they're wooden and they're just, they don't have like a very big emotional range really. But Brad Pitt can be well cast in certain things. And in this, there's an element of casualness and laissez-faire and almost like a surfer dude. He's sort of on his cigarette the whole time in this movie. Yeah. He's self-possessed. It's like he doesn't give a shit. That's it. So he's well cast in a role where he doesn't give a shit and he can just be Brad Pitt not giving a shit, it works. <laughs> It'd be hard for me to imagine him doing the other role. Now I'm going into, well, what actually makes a great actor? Is it the fact that they can show a dynamic range of emotions, or is it that they feel so at home in screen or on stage that you just want to watch them? I think there are a lot of different things that go into that. One of the reasons I love Brad Pitt is that he just exists there, and I believe him. Whether or not he can play a great range of characters. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't take those other types of roles because he doesn't want to, or maybe he doesn't think he's good at them, or maybe he's not good at them. I don't know. But I believe him when he's there. And I think Leo kind of goes into this for me a bit. I would say my number one kind of actor I think about who I really admire, but I don't love in everything is Charlize Theron. But I think she pushes herself a lot. And sometimes it's really great. And sometimes I don't think it's quite as effective. I think that Leo is kind of like that. He seems to just go for things that show huge ranges that he can possibly get an award nomination from. Tarantino's casting is sort of a light version in some ways of like John Waters, that John Waters will put people that are terrible actors, in fact, but some of them, they're, they're just characters. They're interesting to see in that place on the screen. Just the fact that Tarantino puts himself in things and he's not a great actor, but he pops in that interesting way and can do obviously his own dialogue yeah, I feel like Michael Madsen's presence in anything is sort of one of those things that he's not a good actor. You know, if you've seen him in other things, really much at all, but he kind of works for some reason. Samuel L. Jackson, in seeing Samuel L. Jackson and some other things, I'm like, yeah, he's not actually a very good actor, but he's just so good in so many of the Tarantino things. So it's really great casting and writing to order and to match up with each other because Travolta mm-hmm. got an Oscar nomination also. And I don't think he's the best. Actor, no, but no, <laughs> he was, you know, for, for Vince Vega, he was probably the right guy. He was just fine. Yeah. So I think going back to were they cast appropriately? I, I think so. I mean, yes, you could probably could do the other role, but I feel like Brad's just so good at just existing in that world. And Leo's really good at showing off his dynamism. But let's talk about for a second who I thought was a huge standout in this film, which was Margaret Qualley, who played Pussycat. Yes, I totally agree. She's the best in the film by far as an actress. Yeah. Did you have one of those moments of trying to figure out what you knew her from? 
and had to go back? Because I did. Well, I knew what I knew her from. I couldn't remember the name though, just like I, you know, how I just referenced eight millimeter instead of 35. I said to my husband, I was like, yeah, she, remember, she was really great in that show about like the people who were left behind, left over. And he's like, oh yeah, the leftovers. And I was like, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> yeah, that was the one for me too. <laughs> I, I looked her up. I, I hadn't seen her in anything, but I did research her and she's a pretty new actress. And then we started in ballet, actually. Did you uh, read or listen to any of the interviews about the foot shot? A lot of feet shots in these films. What do you mean? I mean, I've looked at some of the chatter about it, but I didn't. She did not want to do it. Oh, really? He was telling her to do it, and she's like, "Yeah, thanks, but I, I don't, I don't think so." Have you seen these guys? They've been in a point shoes far too long to be pretty enough to put on screen. I'm not about it. She did. <laughs> she tried not to do it. Eventually, he got his way, and she did it. But she's just like not real excited about it. She should have had a foot double. <laughs> Also, the exchange with the little girl, so Julia Butters played Trudy, I see is the character's name, who is giving her very serious, you have to call me by my character's names, and is just kind of going through these acting tips and being beyond her years. Just the dynamic of that couple of scenes that she has with Dalton just works really well. So that, to me also, I had another qualm with that. Like It was a fun scene to watch, but I didn't understand the point of it within, like, what exactly was Tarantino doing in this film? Did he tell the story he wanted to tell effectively? Because there were moments like this where I was like, I want to see what's going on with the Manson family. I want to see what's going on with Tate. I want to see what's going on, like, behind the scenes. I felt like I already got what I needed from Leo's character based on even basically the intro of the movie. I enjoy Timothy Oliphant very much. I enjoyed those scenes, but what did they actually have to do with the thesis of the film other than to just celebrate old Hollywood? Is that all it was? A lot of it is he's just having fun. You're just meant to enjoy it for what it is, I think. But I think it fits in with the development of his character, which is important to the thesis of the film, as someone who he's really vain. He really takes acting seriously, even though he does what he's doing or stupid parts in westerns he's a fading star who's humiliated by his position as the heavy this whole thing about the heavy and the outlaw is really important i think because that's sort of what the manson family are trying to be in the end before they get punished by the cowboy bad guys they're trying to be heavies and they go down the wrong alleyway and meet a couple of people who are really functionally like dalton and Booth, they don't really just function as people who are in the movies. They function as real cowboy badasses who can do really violent things, you know, at least at the very end of the movie. But I think in Dalton's case, his main, you know, a lot of the movie is it cuts back and forth between Tate and Dalton and just makes a direct comparison of them. And the comparison is that she is completely without vanity and filmmaking for her is a joyful thing. And she has a life beyond that. And it clearly wouldn't matter if she weren't a film star. She would still love life and enjoy life. And for Dalton, it's everything. And he's tortured by it. And so you get those two different visions of two different relationships to film and filmmaking and love of film. And I think that's really important to the movie because the movie in a way is a defense of Tarantino's particular brand of love of film, which includes the right to play with violence in any way he wishes. I guess I just don't understand what triumph he's building towards. Is it his acting triumph when he finally has that great scene when he does this wonderful job of acting? Or is it his literal good guy triumph of standing there looking like kind of a buffoon still, but 
using a blowtorch to kill someone. I feel like the movie doesn't know which of those two things it's aiming toward, or, or maybe both of them are important. The art for him is actually tragic, right? So his film career is ending, and that evening is the effective end of his film career. He went and did the spaghetti western thing. No, nonsense. It's He gets the fairy tale ending where he's just been introduced into Roman Polanski's world. He just got a, his second chance at acting. He's going to be a real star now. Roman Polanski being another guy that, like Waters and Tarantino, would, I think, cast some people that are just weird and interesting to look at. That could be true. I didn't take it that way, just given Dalton, he's basically a buffoon through the whole movie, and he doesn't get a lot of what he wants, really. It just seems to me like the likelihood that things are actually going to work out for him in the way that he wants, given the way things have gone, are not actually high. In any case, he's an aging actor. For, I think his, it seems like his best days are probably behind him. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I don't really think the film, he's not a typical protagonist. He's the butt of the joke, really for most of the film, and he's a foil to Tate, who's not a well-developed character just because she's an idealized symbol. But I don't see an arc there where there's some real triumph for him. I don't know if you're at all referring to the article that uh, I brought in on the troubling subtext of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Jen Cheney from Vulture. I thought it was a great article, and she had a lot of issues with the film. And a couple of those in regards to this in particular was the problem is that the person who truly gets the happy ending in the movie is not Cliff or Sharon, it's Rick Dalton. Rick Dalton is vindicated, even though as sympathetic as DiCaprio makes him, it's not clear that he deserves to be. It's difficult not to view the ending as a reward for a fading old cowboy and a celebration of an era in which men were men. I agree, it seems like he does get the happy ending, and Cliff, who did the majority of the work, is like wheeled off and he still doesn't have a job. And it's hard to say if he will have a job, because if Rick Dalton continues to have like a real, if we want to call it a real film career after this, he's probably not going to need a stuntman. The ending is just too strongly about the alternate timeline for Tate and saving Tate for it to be, to me, about Rick Dalton at all. Him and Booth just serve that purpose. Ultimately, they exist in the movie as a counterfactual, as a thought experiment of something that would actually save Tate. And the thing that saves her, ironically, being these two people who look as if they just walked out of a cowboy movie, as if the old sorts of movies could save Tate, you know, who herself is like an idealized representation of film. So it's hard for me to wrap my head around this idea that there's something good for Dalton in the end. Would it have made more sense, as will be the case, I guess, on Netflix, when this is actually released on streaming services, is for this to be episodic in the way that Pulp Fiction was? That even though there's a tie-in and there's interesting things sort of with the timeline and presenting things out of order so that you can see what happens to Travolta's character as uh, thematically descended from what chronologically in the film happens later where Samuel L. Jackson's character says, I'm going to leave this gangster life and walk the earth. There are connections, thematic and otherwise, between the piece, but basically it's an anthology. I kind of think that thinking of this movie as an anthology, makes it more palatable than thinking of it as something that is just building to the end. I mean, this is not Inglorious Bastards, where everything is about the plan to destroy a bunch of Nazis. I would have been happy to see an entire episode of Bounty Law. Like, I just love this little genre. You know, this, this is a lot of the appeal of the film to me, is just his love of 1969, the stuff that he was watching on TV and in the movies when he was really young, and creating these imitative cultural products. And so 
expecting all of that stuff and the whole Rick Dalton story with his struggles with acting to feed directly into the ending seems like it's overinflating the importance of the ending. There might be something to that, Mark. You know, I'll admit to a lot of ignorance here going into this movie. I didn't really know the story very well. I know the Manson family killed Sharon Tate. I didn't really know if Rick Dalton was a person or if this show, because there were so many Westerns on in the 50s or 60s, it wasn't really clear to me if these were minor characters that existed early on. And as we moved along in the story, it became clearer that this probably was the case. But unlike Inglorious Bastards, where I know that a bunch of people didn't kill Hitler that year, I wasn't really sure if this was building towards the actual ending or a total science fiction ending of an alternate history. And for that reason, I was having trouble knowing where to focus my attention in this movie and really kind of wondering why we were dwelling on Rick and Cliff so much. And as we moved along, I guess I figured it out. But I think Tarantino was maybe playing on some of the ignorance of his audience in order to be able to tell the story he told. I can't see it being presented in a different way as you're suggesting. I mean, maybe it would be more effective or, or maybe less, but I'm always fascinated when someone can tell a nonlinear story in a successful way. I, I still kind of feel like Pulp Fiction was a work of magic to be as effective as it was told in such a asynchronous way. I mean, I knew a lot about the Manson murders and I didn't think by the end of the movie we'd get to the point where the Manson gang are about to kill Sharon Tate and her friends. And as that see more and more like that would happen, I started getting, I got more and more uncomfortable. Like, how is he going to do this? Because it's a really, if you've read about the murders, they're really horrible. You know, Tate is pregnant and stabbed to death after watching her friends get stabbed to death herself. And then it's a really tragic thing. And you don't, it's not the kind of thing you want Tarantino or really anyone, but especially Tarantino to present in film, even indirectly. So I was kind of horrified. And then when we got the alternative ending, I was disturbed as I always am by Tarantino's violence, but I was also enormously gratified by the alternative ending. And I think the way all the buildup with Dalton and Booth works, it's not as much about external plot. I mean, it's about external plot to the extent that they're set up as the people who are going to intercept the Manson gang and play the role of cowboys to the Manson gang's presumptuous attempt at being heavies, which they're not really. They're not really outlaws and they can't live up to that role. And they ran into the wrong guys who can live up to the role of enforcers. So it establishes them in that they're going to play the role of cowboys in the end, having a showdown with the villains. But beyond that, the buildup is emotional. The distinction that's critical is the one between Tate's particular attitude towards film and filmmaking versus Dalton's, and then Tate's special connection to Booth, who I think of as her spirit animal in a way. It's like, what if someone that vulnerable and loving actually had a built-in protection in a way that if she were completely invulnerable because there were some function out there, some person who could perform the function of defending her, even if it meant using violence, but then he can't be personally connected to her because if he's personally connected to her, she's contaminated by that. So you need this action at a distance in a way. You need this sociopathic booth-like character to perform this role of protecting the loving, vulnerable one without contaminating her idealized role. And so I thought that was all very neat and interesting if I weren't doing my thing and trying to make maximal sense of it and cram it into my particular theories, it probably looks just disorganized and like it doesn't hang together. But at an emotional level, I felt like it did. And I, and that's when I wrote about it. I've tried to justify that. I thought I read somewhere that Bruce Lee was possibly supposed to be there that night and then ended up not going. So it would have been also interesting to have 
his character since we only saw him in this fantasy. Well, not only, but that was one of the main spots we saw him in was in this fantasy of Cliff. If he was there that night and if he and Sharon could have taken somebody down, you know, either together or whatever, like to take the ending and link it back to something that happens earlier in the movie and maybe even to make Sharon take an active role against those transgressors at the end may have been even more satisfying than two guys who lived down the street from her. Yeah, it's just that she no longer performs the same role in the film. There's a bunch of wishes that animate the film. One of them is that, hey, I wish this horrible thing that happened to Sharon Tate had never happened. And I wish the people who'd done it were punished really violently for it. Another one is just, hey, I wish critics would leave me alone and stop giving me a hard time about violence in my films. And so he puts the critic, for instance, in the role, Sadie Atkins, in the car. And she, when she says, you know, they decided to go after Rick Dalton, we're going to kill the people who taught us to kill. So Tarantino is directly poking at critics there and putting them in the actual role of the Manson murderers and then having his fun in that way. And another wish is just that I wish that critics would leave filmmaking alone. I wish that vulnerable, loving people would be left alone by people who take advantage of them. So for Tate, ultimately what I'm trying to say is if Tate is going to fulfill this very idealized, she's not a character so much as just a signifier. If she's going to fulfill that role and represent what I think she represents, which is cinephilia, love of film, or maybe love more generally, she can't be contaminated by the act of defending herself. Then it's no longer love, then it's anger, then it's aggression. She has to be the one doing the killing, all that stuff. And so the wish is that something like love would have this invulnerable aspect, but the invulnerable aspect can't be internal to love because then love is compromised by it anyway and ceases to be love that's my very abstract way of putting it that's why you need this weird action at a distance relationship with booth this enforcer who i think is connected to her in a neat way it's the spirit animal type of connection or what i might call identification but if she were to have agency she is in a way a function of or booth is an extension of tape booth is not just dalton's servant booth is what Tate's spirit would do if it were powerful enough, let's say something like that. That sounds kind of nice, but it still makes me feel really icky that she can't have the agency. And I know that Tarantino has talked about this. I looked it up. Why? Like I heard people say, Margot Robbie is so great in this movie. And I fucking love Margot Robbie. And then I was like, where is she? Why am I just seeing her smiling and dancing? Like this is boring. What a boring role to play. And if you're going to go and make a total revenge fantasy about her murders, it does feel kind of icky that she doesn't have anything to do with that and to have men take care of her the whole time. Without historical context, just as a straight movie, her role is actually too big in this. She has nothing to do with these murders. She's just the woman who lives up the street, and in some ways we're seeing too much of her. Her role only makes sense if we both know the counterfactual story and the factual story, and we're sort of stuck in the middle. We're not getting really one done effectively, and we're not giving enough service to the reality version of it. I don't know. This is late in the podcast for me to reveal that I didn't really like this movie very much, but I didn't. I like some things about it, but I thought it was really undisciplined and meandered in ways that his other movies where he has long dialogue, it's always going somewhere or serving a purpose, where here I didn't think it did a lot of the time. That being said, I did appreciate parts of it, but I don't think this was a success the way that some of his other movies succeed. 
I agree completely, Brian. I'm, I found myself confused. I found myself looking at my phone a lot to see what time it was. And I am, you know, I've told you guys this before. I'll sit through a four hour opera. It's not that I don't mind pacing that's different, but I do feel like he could have had the help of a better editor. I had trouble at the end being like, what story was he trying to tell? And yeah, like, why is Margot Robbie on the front? Why is she one of the three characters put on the poster of this? Because yeah, like we see a lot of her, but she doesn't do a lot. And the times we do get to see her do something is great. But so often it's just, yeah, I want to see more of her or less of her, but it would just felt so awkward at times. And it felt kind of gross at times, like to see how Tarantino was treating this fantasy. And I know that part of it was, he's like, well, I want to see just a day in the life. It's just a day in the life of her. But like, Man, I got to say, as being a female actress, it gets really annoying to hear people say like, but we want to see this of you. We, you don't need to have this agency and and you're this and like having people put you in a box of needing to be one thing. And I think that's maybe partially why I liked Margaret Qualley so much in this. And I wanted to see even more of her because I'm like, well, there's somebody with a perspective. So yeah, it can be about Tate, but then why are we seeing so much of her just dancing and just like you know, just love and life, whatever. It's a misuse of her. It's a misuse of Robbie. I'm sorry. I will stop now. That's, that's my thought. <laughs> Narratively, like if it wasn't again for the historical circumstances, there's no way you wouldn't bring Quali back for that final scene, that she wouldn't be involved in some way. Like that's just bizarre that, or the squeaky from character or the one from girls. There are a lot of interesting faces at the ranch in that part. And only a couple of them, of course, because of the historical limitations appear here. But if you're going to revise history, you could do it even more radically. You know, I just saw this as a whole, like, here's the pitch for the movie. What if they went to the wrong house and there were badasses there? Like, it's like a joke setup, And we're going to really have fun and expand and explore all the aspects of being in Hollywood and having the Hollywood dream and that kind of stuff. And so I thought the scene where Sharon Tate goes and sees her own movie, you know, that's one of the highlights of the film. It's just, you know, a moment of pure joy and just another one of these aspects that's being explored. I want to make sure we, as potentially a last topic here, we just talk about sort of the auteur in general that I feel like Tarantino has been able to set himself up as all other forces leave me alone. I will do my own editing. And I wouldn't mind, frankly, if there was a other minds coming in, creating the theatrical release, and then we had the extended director's cut that was his full vision. Like, I don't mind the auteur thing, surrendering to his vision and just soaking this in, but not necessarily in a theater in one sitting. This could have been told more efficiently and probably should have been. Even though I didn't really like this movie a lot, it's not, I don't think it was a bad movie. I mean, there were so many wonderful moments in it, which is why we're talking about it. It's why we talk about Tarantino, I think. I hope that the reason that we're talking about this movie is because it's worth talking about and not because it's just a Tarantino movie. And I think there are some beautiful moments worth saying, and that's hopefully what good art gives us is we can pick things apart like this. So it's not a hate for Tarantino. It's just me personally. I kind of wish that if he hadn't, that he would have maybe, you know, gotten some opinions of other people of how to make certain things more effective than he did, because I feel like there's so many times the type of storytelling he was doing was a disservice. So I guess I'm in the, uh, I'm the lone holdout here. It's great though. We tend to agree on a lot of things. So it's awesome to have like difference of opinions really. Wes. Yeah. I think 
it's his best film by far and i think it's a brilliant film and the pacing i mean i've seen it multiple times and i can enjoy it every time it doesn't bore me and i think the cohesion in the film is internal so if you're looking to justify things in terms of a very tight external plot line that hits all the plot points at the right moments in movies that they typically hit them yeah, definitely it doesn't do that externally, but I think emotionally it coheres very well and it does something really interesting and builds really well. I thought there was a kind of sophistication to it, which in some ways is something of an accident, I think, but it's a product of Tarantino also deciding that he is going to pay tribute to Hollywood in a way. And that love really comes out and I think that guides the movie in a way. And with Tate, once he makes her the representative of film and love of film, which is what I, again, I think he does, then yeah, that makes that role a much different sort of role because she's not the protagonist and she's not playing the role of a character who's going to be developed anyway or have any any arc other than who she is and she doesn't actually get murdered. So Wes has revealed that this was what he thinks is Tarantino's finest movie. I'll be curious to hear everyone else's take on that because it maybe reveals a little something or what you, your favorite, if not what you think his best one is either way, Erica. I've seen probably half of his films, so I'm not great to ask, but I would say for me Inglorious bastards is probably the one I came away and just like felt great and really enjoyed altogether the most. I just have trouble with that sort of comparison and, you know, I might have said Jackie Brown, but I just rewatched Jackie Brown, and I guess I was sort of doing other things at the same time, so, so it was like not the right ex- way to watch that film, but I definitely enjoyed it less than any of the other ones that I've seen recently. Because was seeing Pulp Fiction again, you know, as with Reservoir Dogs, there's a brilliance and there's a tightness. Well, I, not a tightness. There's still a lot of hanging around, obviously, but I'm seeing the seams in a way that I do think that the new one displays the most skill in pretty much every respect. So I don't know that it's the one that I viscerally enjoyed the most, but I did like it. I think just Wes has an advantage on us that he's seen it more than once. And I remember liking Inglorious Bastards when I saw it in the theater, but when I just saw it this time, I just completely enjoyed it start to finish. Like, whereas I might've been, how long is this scene going to go on? Why is it, you know, Mark, is, is, did we see that movie together? Inglorious Bastards? I feel like we did. Maybe. I loved Inglorious Bastards, and maybe it's just my cultural bloodlust for Hitler, but that was just awesome. Like looking back on all of his works, I feel like Kill Bill put together, in my mind, feels like his finest creation. The three and a half hours of all of Kill Bill. I just really think, talking about, you know, auteurs, Mark, you go take a risk by doing something like that, but when it works, it is just a kind of a thing of beauty. Eric, if you haven't seen those, Big recommend. That's the only one I haven't revisited, so I can't even... No, I have not seen Kill Bill, either of them, and I have not seen Pulp Fiction. And I think for me, Pulp Fiction is like one of those that when I was growing up, so many people were just talking about it all the time, and then I missed the opportunity at the time, and then it just felt like, oh, I don't know, one day I'll watch it, and then I just have never watched it. But those are the three main ones that I have not seen. All right, so now we're going to have to re-record this podcast without Erica, because... She's not qualified to... Right, I'm no longer qualified. Hey, I never said I was qualified. (laughs) No, none of us are. (laughs) That should be the new name of this. Unqualified. (laughs) Talk about pop culture. I think seeing the children of people who were in those early Tarantino movies now being in Tarantino movies definitely made me feel old. When I saw Maya Hawk in the backseat of the car, I'm like, oh man, Mm -hmm. 
I'm getting old. So I guess I separate out, I always separate out appreciating a movie stylistically from appreciating it ideologically. And so I can go so far as, like, even if they did do a for the public cut (laughs) that was more streamlined and the director's cut, I would still prefer the director's cut. And I think I will prefer the even longer director's cut that is going to appear as an episodic thing on Netflix, apparently, just the way they did with Hateful Eight. That's the way I just saw Hateful Eight. I actually enjoyed it just fine. Not as much as any of the others, but I saw what it was going for. But then beyond that, once I say, okay, this is a style that at least if I'm surrendering myself into their hands, this is someone who has enough of a grasp of how to do movie making that I'm safe in their hands. It's okay if they do things that are just plain weird, you know, both in Glorious Bastards and this one, having a break where then a narrator tells you what's going on. In this case, having this long Kurt Russell thing, explaining that like completely departing from the style of the earlier part like i'm willing to surrender to that like that's okay that's weird (laughs) but it's a weird that's idiosyncratic and i respect it i do think that though accepting all that entering into his world there's a lot to criticize about his ideology itself which is a little apart from the movie making and the enjoyment of it. And yeah, it does come down the, the attitudes, what you were talking about, Erica, about I'm not convinced he's a misogynist necessarily, but there's definitely something weird going on in, you know, that therapy should occur <laughs> with the way that he loves violence if it hasn't already. But that puts you in an interesting space of, you know, self-examination even, you know, to the extent that you also love the end of Hateful Eight when some people just need hanging, ah, and they laugh hysterically. I can have an ambivalent reaction, you know, enough enjoyment, enough sympathy with that that I still like the movie and feel like that was a satisfying ending, but feel gross for doing so and would then going forward question. So I'm open to these sort of critiques of his ideology. Anyway, even if I don't entirely agree to them, they're food for thought, let's say. We could all use some therapy. Maybe that's what it tells us all, you know? So this podcast needs a violent ending. I haven't seen Wes for a while. I haven't heard his voice, so I'm not totally sure he hasn't been murdered. I'm still still alive. (laughs) Oh, thank God. Do you want to uh, plug your... I'm sure that your essay is not going to be done in the next two weeks. Was there any like essential element of that or anything you want to sort of wrap up by letting folks in on let someone steal your idea and publish it first (laughs) yeah no i think i describe some of my ideas i guess if people go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash tarantino i'll have that forward to wherever it ends up being that essay well i'm so glad you suggested this i'm glad to have the excuse to immerse myself in this oeuvre Yeah, it was fun. Thank you so much, Wes. Good talking to you, Wes. Thank you guys for having me on. Bye-bye. Bye. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network. Please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com. And it's also presented by openculture.com. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode, and you get to hear the episodes in advance of everyone else at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.